0: Good morning. It's delightful to be here, as I was saying last night. I'm not sure if I'm on, but I think I'm about to be. So, um, As you can probably hear, I come from Britain, which gives me all kind of kudos with people, I discover. They think that I must be saying something intelligent because I'm saying it in this accent. Um, don't be fooled, but if you're fooled, that's okay with, okay with me too, you know? Um, I'm going to talk about what's the use of stories that aren't even true narrative in the Christian reader, and this is a humanities lecture If you're on the ball, you'll recognize that I'm covering things not only from literature but also from Bible and theology, from philosophy, from history, from political science, from social studies, so hang in and you'll see where we're going. First of all, I need to explain my title, and to do that, I need to tell you a little bit about Salman Rushdie. Oh, it's not going to work. Okay, we need to do it this way. There we go. He is Indian by birth, British by upbringing, and probably best known for the Satanic Verses. Uh, This is the book for which in February 1989, he was put under a death warrant in a fatwa decreed by the Ayatollah Khomeini, who was then the political and religious leader of Iran. The novel was said to be a blasphemy against the prophet Muhammad and the Islamic faithful were called to exterminate its writer, and any others who were actively engaged in its promotion. Anyone who dies in the cause of ridding the world of Rashti will be a martyr, they said. Well, you know, however strongly we may feel about blasphemy, or even about the inadvisability of scandalizing the religious beliefs of other people, It isn't really the Christian way to murder the writer, except perhaps in reviews. But in Rushdie's case, in the first four years of that fatwa, the Japanese translator of the book was murdered. The Italian translator and the Norwegian publisher were both nearly killed. An assassin accidentally blew himself up in an English hotel with a bomb that was intended for Rushdie. 56 people were killed and a further 160 wounded in riots and associated troubles sparked by that book in India, in Pakistan, and in Turkey. The fatwa was apparently negotiated to an end by the British government in 1998, but February 2006, A government-run foundation in Iran declared that, after all, the fatwa will be in effect forever. So, Rushdie now lives in New York. He spent nine years of his life in hiding under British government protection, unable to stay in one place for more than a very short time, and living with four burly security guards the entire time. If you want to read about this, the book that he's written about his time in the fatwa, is, under the fatwa, is called Joseph Anton, which is his pen name from that time, taken from Joseph Conrad and Anton Chekhov. And that book is presently uh, in your library on the new acquisitions uh, f- stand. I saw it there yesterday and thought, okay? So that's a book to read. Anyway, most of this time he was separated from his son. He had a son who was 11, um, and his name was Zafar. And while Rushdie was under the fatwa in 1990, he published a book called Harun and the Sea of Stories. This was for his son. Um, Because the son couldn't be with him during that time, he wrote this book. And on one level, it's a children's fantasy, but don't be fooled. On another level, it is a plea for freedom of speech and the vital necessity of stories. It's a, a lovely book. Has anyone read this book by any chance? I strongly recommend it to you. It's enormous fun. It makes you laugh out loud, but it also has this very serious undertow going on and what the message is about. It's about Harun and his father, Rashid, sounds a little bit like Rushdie, uh, who is the city's storyteller. When his father loses the gift of the gab, Harun sets off on a quest to find the ocean of the streams of story. Eventually, he has to fight against Khatam Shud, who is a despotic leader in a silent land where the followers all have zipped lips. And he's building this vast plug which is going to dam up the sea of stories forever down at the bottom of the ocean because stories are the one thing he cannot control. Rushdie provides a glossary at the end of the book uh, of Hindustani names and khatam should means completely finished over and done with. Rushdie himself has said of Harun and the Sea of Stories, it's a grown-up novel of ideas masquerading as a children's book. So a bit like Gulliver's Travels, or maybe the Narnia series. The taunt that originally drives Rashid to despair, and therefore to the loss of his storytelling skills, is a sarcastic comment by his totally unimaginative neighbor, Mr. Sangupta, who seduces Rashid's wife with the serious business of facts. It's a taunt which Harun throws at his father in a moment of anger when his mother has left. What's the use of stories that aren't even true? In response, Rashid hid his face in his hands and wept. What's the use of stories that aren't even true? This is a question that haunts many English students, perhaps particularly English students with a social conscience, and perhaps most of all, English students who are Christian. In my third year contemporary fiction class at Redeemer, we regularly read Haroon and the Sea of Stories. I try to show the students that stories can actually be a matter of life and death in the real world, outside the story, as they have been for Rushdie. And I ask the students to consider Haroon's question, what's the use of stories that aren't even true? A lively discussion regularly ensues. Many of these students seem to feel that their peers in business or environmental studies or social work or education are often, in effect, asking them that question. What's the use of studying English? Why don't you do some seriously useful work and look at... In a city ministry, or saving the environment, or running an honest business, or even teaching Bible to kids. What's all this about reading stories for your homework? What's the use of stories that aren't even true? Actually I find a number of students get this kind of comment at home as well. Um, What are you going to do with an English major if you don't want to be a teacher? Isn't it a bit self-indulgent? How will it advance the kingdom of God? Will it even feed your family? I'm not gonna talk today about the practical value of an English degree for getting you a job, though I could. Being able to write well and read intelligently are skills that almost any managerial job requires, for instance. But I want rather to address this question a little bit philosophically. What's the use of stories that aren't even true? Perhaps it's even a question for some of you. Now, of course, as a Christian, teaching in a school which takes a reformed biblical perspective I am always conscious that in teaching literature I am teaching a rich creaturely expression of God's creativity under God's sovereign care. I'm trying to be a good steward of God's various gifts. I want my students to understand that literature is an extension of God's imagining and ordering of the world. I want them to recognize how God has given them literature as a beautiful and life-enhancing gift to enjoy. Aesthetic appreciation. Enjoying a good book because it's beautifully put together, beautifully crafted, is in and of itself a valid thing to do. I want my students to understand that God's command in Genesis 1.28 to be fruitful and fill the earth relates to all the world's potential, including its literary potential, and not just to its families and its gardens. As Carl Seerveld has said, culture is not... Optional. To fight cultural amplification of creation is to be disobedient to the will of the Lord revealed in the scriptures. That's pretty strong. Well, okay, but my students might still want to ask how does cultural amplification actually work? What's the use of stories? So, in good Christian tradition, let's start with the Bible. First off, we might ask why Jesus himself told so many stories. As often as not, when someone would ask him a question, he'd respond with a story. Peter asks, Lord, if my brother sins against me, how often should I forgive? Jesus tells him the story of the unforgiving servant. Peter asks again, Lord, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus tells him the story of the laborers in the vineyard. A lawyer asks, who is my neighbor? Jesus tells him the story of the Good Samaritan. Simon the Pharisee has Jesus for dinner and silently judges him for being accepting of a prostitute. Jesus tells him the story of canceled debts. Why does Jesus tell stories? Why doesn't he just tell the questioners and the curious and the cynics the truth? Well, the first suggestion I'm going to make is that stories offer a wider kind of response than abstract propositional statements do. Stories give you an environment to explore. They extend beyond your rational faculties to include your imagination and your feelings. They put you into a narrative. And that means that any simplified headliner statements are blown up like balloons and become three-dimensional. Who's my neighbor? Well, the person I meet who needs my care, right? Only partly, right? My neighbor may be a person quite unlike me, In fact, someone I don't even expect to trust, who comes into my life at the right time and gives me a hand when I badly need it. Jesus asks at the end of that story, who was neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? The neighbor is the Samaritan. He wants us to see that we are called to love not only the person in obvious need, but also the foreigner who is stronger and better off than ourselves, our neighbor who helps us in our need. Stories offer a bigger, more multifaceted response. The second suggestion I'd make as to why Jesus tells stories is that they engage our imagination in spite of ourselves. Stories can get to us when we resist the affront of propositional truth. In Jesus' story about the creditor and the two debtors, for instance, Simon the Pharisee could see that the debtor who was forgiven the bigger debt would be likely to love the creditor more before he could see that that story applies analogically to himself. So the judgment that he pronounces is on himself. Stories get under our skin. You remember earlier in the scriptural narrative, think of King David and Nathan's story of the Ulam. David had presumably long since rationalized his many transgressions against Bathsheba and Uriah until he's shocked into repentance by Nathan's story, which moves him and engages him before he realizes he has to pass judgment on himself. Look it up in 2 Samuel 12. The poet Emily Dickinson, whom perhaps some of you have studied, writes a poem which begins, tell all the truth, but tell it slant. That's how both Jesus and the Old Testament prophets tell their stories. Third, Stories can have this kind of power because they reflect back our everyday lives. Rather than presenting us with a list of facts to learn, a set of theories or propositions to memorize, a structure of information to retain, you can tell those are not my favorite way of learning, they come right down to where we are and sit down with us among the coffee cups and the need to do the dishes or out on the summer job on the farm with the worker who gets hired later than I do but by some quirk of the employer's gets paid the same. Stories show me things about myself and my world and my reactions to it. They open my eyes to where I'm sitting. They say, put yourself in the narrative. Watch how things unfold. Read the situation carefully. I was going to talk about these two guys, but you'll have to ask about them later. This was just to say the classical critics knew well about the power of literary language to transfer, to transform and reflect the world in eloquent ways. Take note, professors here, you're gonna cover Horace and Sydney later. So fourth. Stories can help me see through somebody else's eyes rather than just through my own. Stories foster empathy. How does this kind of summer job and this sort of attitude to my summer job look to a person from another culture who couldn't find a summer job because of their color or their accent or their religion? How did it look to someone 100 years ago? How would it look to an elderly person or to someone from another faith? C.S. Lewis argued 80 odd years ago that it's in reading literature and in studying that our experience of life is expanded so we can live wisely and well in the present. He said, a man who has lived in many times and places is not likely to be deceived by the local errors of his native village. And because literature gives us a particularly vivid kind of surrogate experience of living in many times and places, it's particularly able to cultivate in us the capacity to see from somebody else's point of view. But let's go back to Jesus' stories for a minute. Are Jesus' stories true stories? of someone or something he's experienced? Or are they made up stories that illustrate what he wants to say? And does it matter? Interesting question. Stories were clearly very useful to Jesus. He would see situations that needed addressing and address them with a story. Those who trusted themselves and despised others are given the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector Those who love money are given the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Those who grumble that Jesus spends time with sinners are given the story of the prodigal son and his brother. But could Jesus go and see that particular Pharisee in the temple? Could they go and visit the brothers of that particular rich man? Could they go and talk with that particular lost sheep of Israel who is found? Was Jesus talking about a good Samaritan he'd met? Had Jesus met the prodigal son? Did these people really exist? Well, yes and no. The truth of stories, you see, isn't necessarily the kind of truth which has what we would call a specific empirical referent, a particular piece of real world evidence in mind. The truth of stories is something more wide reaching than that. Jesus' story about the unforgiving servant becomes a story about anyone who, in need who gives less mercy than he receives. Jesus' story about the prodigal son becomes a story about anyone who sees the error of his ways and is received back into the family. Does that universalizing from the particulars make the stories less true? Of course, sometimes Jesus does tell stories about things that really happened. Even things that were part of the Jewish scriptures, for instance, Elijah and the widow of Zarephath, he talks about in Luke 4. Or he talks about John the Baptist's ministry. Sometimes he tells stories about things that haven't happened yet, like his own death and resurrection, or the fall of Jerusalem, or his coming again at the end of the world. So, Even the truth of historical stories is not necessarily a truth of relation to past events or that way your way around. It can be stories about things that have yet to come. Though the way in which the story and the actuality fit together is not all that straightforward, is it? To describe the Messiah as a shepherd or a shoot from dry ground or as having no comeliness that we should desire him, you recognize all of those references from Isaiah, is to use metaphors that have to be interpreted in order to relate to Jesus. So, it's not just truth as correct facts that we're talking about here. It's the truth of imagination and faith. Now, wait a minute, you say, this is getting messy. I mean, a story can't always be equally valid whether or not it's actually happened. What about the big story that we live in, the meta-narrative of our faith? Surely it matters that Jesus was a real human being who walked this earth and healed people and told stories, and died by crucifixion and rose from death in a special kind of body and went back to be with his Father in heaven. The Apostle Paul even says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Yes, that story matters. The story has to be what Francis Schaeffer used to call true truth. It's not enough to believe in the concept of that story or the general imaginative truth of that story. We need Jesus with a real body and dying a real death if we are to be born into God's kingdom. So yes, it does matter that we know what's fact and what's fiction around Jesus. And it does matter surely too when we tell other stories about events from the past. There's a difference between a fictional story that might be made up about some young soldier who fought and died in Italy in the Second World War, and the story of my uncle, whom I never met because he really did die, aged 21, in the awful mess around Monte Cassino, years before I was even born, and his grave is marked on the hillside in that place. My grandfather, his father, was a semi-professional cellist, and the story was told in my family that the day he heard his son had been killed, he put away his cello, and he didn't play it again for two whole years. And that was truly true. So we have to be careful not to take away the dignity and significance of real people and real death and real grief by turning everything into the kind of story that doesn't seem to need a specific real referent. Any of you who have family who have been killed in military service know all about this. And yet we need to take our fictional ser- stories seriously too because we need to recognize that stories open our eyes and our minds, convict our hearts, lead us into empathy, give us compassion for people very different to ourselves. And if we remember that the telling of stories can be a matter of death and life in many parts of our world even today, as Rushdie's story shows us, then perhaps we will be less submissive, uh, dismissive than Mr. Sengapta in Rushdie's story and actually many conservative Christians of stories that aren't even true. Remember, and I love this, that Mr. Singupta seduces Rashid's wife not with story, but with facts. Mr. Singupta has no imagination at all. That is okay by me, says uh, Saraya in her farewell note. What a wonderful rebuttal of those who are concerned that it is fiction that can lure us from the straight and narrow, while facts somehow correlate with ethical living but I'd like to go back just for a moment to the truth of scripture. I'm always struck, as probably you are too, by the statement that Jesus makes at his trial before Pilate. I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And Pilate says to him, what is truth? What irony when Jesus, who is the truth, is standing right there Pilate doesn't understand that the truth might be a who rather than a what. What difference might it make to our understanding of truth and of true stories to start from that insight? In order to think a little bit more about that question, I decided to investigate the word truth in the Bible with help from some concordances and one of the biblical scholars at Redeemer, Dr. Al Walters. Here's what I discovered. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for truth, and probably some of you know this, is emet, which suggests truth as reliability, permanence, continuance, fidelity, truth like troth. Dr. Walters told me that this word, therefore, refers as much to faithfulness or constancy as to correct factuality. And then in the New Testament, the Greek word is aletheia. Dr. Walters explained that the New Testament use of aletheia must be understood in light of that Hebrew word, emet, not the Greek philosophical idea of theoretical truth. So here too, truth is relational. And One of the things that interested me and surprised me the most is that truth is also a verb, a behavior to truth. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way in him who is the head, is actually a translation of the word truthing, Truthing in love. It's not just to do with what you say. It's to do with who you are, how you behave. It's a verb. Isn't that neat? So, truth as relational reliability, fidelity, constancy. I checked my big OED, Oxford English Dictionary, the one with the historical citations for each word, which I love. And it turns out that in English, too, this is actually a more ancient way of understanding truth than the notion of truth as just conformity with fact or correctness of the account of reality. This second set of meanings seems to come into play, and you won't be surprised about this, somewhere around the time of the Reformation. Unsurprisingly, to increase in provenance through the period of the Enlightenment with its particular emphasis on the powers of reason and rational argument. Of course, the first group of meanings, the prior group, the ones that revolve around integrity and fidelity, are particularly powerful in approaching the study of literature. And then, listen for a moment to the French Protestant Christian philosopher Paul Ricoeur, I mentioned last night, who died in 2005 at the great age of 92. Clearly the thing to be, if you want to live into your 90s, is a Christian philosopher. They last a long time. Ricoeur has something else really significant to say to us about the importance of stories. Because he talks of what he calls a narrative quality to experience. And he describes human life as an incipient story that needs to be made into a narrative. He actually argues that the serious business of life cannot be understood other than through stories that we tell about it. And he goes even further. He suggests that it's by using what he calls narrative intelligence that we try to gain hold on our own integrity. He talks about the narrative identity which constitutes us. In other words, We need a narrative understanding of ourselves to move into full personhood. Obviously, we're not developed as individuals, mature people at the moment of birth. Ricoeur says that our self is developed through narrative wholeness. It gains in part from the stories we receive from the literary tradition, not just Bible stories, but the whole cultural tradition that we inherit. He argues that a life is no more than a biological phenomenon, as long as it is not interpreted. And in the interpretation, fiction plays a considerable mediating role. What he's suggesting here is that reading fiction shows us how plot works, how narrative is shaped, and therefore enables us to do the same kind of work in finding meaning in our own life stories. In fact, since reading is already, says Recur, a way of living in the fictitious universe of the work, one could say that stories are in any case always lived in the imaginary mode. We might suggest that hearing and understanding and interpreting stories is part of the God-given way our self is brought into full adulthood, not just in Jesus' telling of stories, but also in our telling of stories, real and fictional, to one another. Stories have a central part to play in our working out who we are as human beings. The early Puritans knew all about this, didn't they, when they laid importance on the, um, uh, emphasis on the importance of personal testimony to God's salvation narrative in the individual life as part of vital growth in uh, Christian health and strength. Today, there are many Christian traditions that still believe in the importance of giving your testimony. And I was thinking, actually, about uh, the the continuation of the Puritan belief that is actualized in Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, that you have those beautiful pictures in your library illustrating. Because in that novel, uh, a novel, quasi-novel, Um, Christian is constantly questioned by evangelists and asked to spell out what he's been learning and experiencing. He's always been asked to give his testimony, effectively. And in the modern secular world, too, um, there has been a rediscovery of the health-giving power of story, especially in counseling and in trauma therapy, where the telling of the story is seen as a vital part of a person's move to health. Let's just go back to recur for a moment. In an interview, he said, narration preserves the meaning that is behind us so that we can have meaning before us. And to give people back a memory is also to give them back a future, to put them back in time and thus release them from the instantaneous mind. That's for those of you who want to grapple with a complex idea. I love this thought Um, more later. The biblical story and the church, think about how this notion of recurs relates to the Bible and the church. The Bible is full of directives to remember the story. Think of the memorial stones that Old Testament heroes place at significant points in their journeys to remind people of events that have taken place there. Think of the rituals that mark the remembrance of a story. The Passover, where the ritual itself, of course, is included in the story. Um, the processions, the offerings, and in the New Testament, uh, think of Jesus's constitution of the communion meal, which in itself uh, remembers his death until his coming again. It, re- it returns to the story. Each of these ways is a way of remembering um, not just a truth: God is merciful, God is just, God is the Redeemer, God is alive. Each of them is a way of remembering the story in which that truth is embedded and enacted. God has been active in the story of God's people for a very long time, and will continue to be so until the story is ended. Right now, we're in the season of Lent. Every year, we remember Jesus's temptations in the wilderness, and we prepare our lives for the trauma and the rejoicing of Good Friday and Easter Sunday. So, we tell the story again. Just like Lent, just like Easter, every memorial of the church, every baptism, every wedding, Every celebration of the Eucharist, every saying of the Lord's Prayer, every giving thanks at a meal has its meaning not just in that moment alone, but in the story of which it is a part. It has a past, a present, and a future significance in this great narrative of Scripture that we're inhabiting. God doesn't call us primarily, I would say, to a set of rules or even a set of beliefs. He calls us to join a community of faith within a great narrative of faith with a past, a present, and a future. And that is why narrative matters so much to the Christian. Christians inhabit the story. Perhaps one could say that the narrative God has authored is being written around and through us. In the New Testament and the people of God, the British theologian N.T. Wright, who some of you may have heard of, considers how the power and authority of the biblical narrative are related to its goal. He imagines scripture on the Shakespearean model of a five act play. Act one, creation. Act two, fall. Act three, the history of Israel before Christ. Act four, the kingdom Jesus initiates in his life, death, and resurrection. Act five, the history of the church from AD to the final consummation at the end of time. And Wright says that the one act that isn't fully written is Act five. Because We are in Act 5, improvising. We've been told the beginning of the story and the middle of the story and the end of the story. We know the key events of the narrative. We have the overarching shape. But we have to live out Act 5, improvising as we go along. God has given us the responsibility of getting to the end of the act. This story is not just something we read or hear. It is something... We live inside. In the post-Christian West, we have been so deeply shaped by stories, such as the parable of the Good Samaritan, that we can take them for granted. At some level, our culture still lives inside them. But when stories are heard in a cultural context where they are new, this sense of how they can influence cultural consciousness is much more starkly apparent. For instance, a Catholic missionary to the Maasai in Tanzania in the 1960s, actually a Spiritan from the Spiritans at... Um, Bethel Park a little bit down the road here tells of a story story of a group of Maasai who brought a badly wounded man of another group to the hospital in Wassa. the doctor was able to save the man's life but then he asked the Maasai so why did you bring this man because in the Maasai tradition someone who is that badly hurt will be left outside the village for the hyenas to eat and this man was not a Maasai He was an Hondorubo. He was from a different tribe. And the Maasai elder said, Well, that's the way the story goes. The doctor asked, What do you mean? What story? And the elder replied, Well, I'm not sure I'm remembering it quite right, but it's something like this. There's this guy who was beaten up by thieves, and people from his own ethnic group kept passing him by. So we had to bring him in. Do you see how the parable of the Good Samaritan in that context is not just a story? As it's pondered and discussed in community, it touches the hearts of the hearers at a deeper level and begins to change the way they behave, even to the extent of subverting long-held cultural patterns. In that case, the old conviction that while you care for your own ethnic group, outsiders don't need to be treated equally. Here the Masai are learning from the story how to live out at five. Let's go back to Harun. If we look back to this story, we find that Rashti does something surprisingly similar there with stories, something that answers the awful question, what's the use of stories? that aren't even true. Rashid, the storyteller, used to tell a favorite story about a moody land where things change constantly according to the moods of the inhabitants. After the disaster of Saraya's leaving and Rashid's losing the gift of the Gab, and when he and Harun are being ferried across Dull Lake on their unwilling way to work for Snooty Batu, who is a dishonest politician, Rashid and Harun experience the weather as alternately gloomy, miserable, harsh, and confused. Suddenly, Harun realizes they are living inside the land of his father's story. So he speaks with authority to the lake. The breeze fell away, the thunder and lightning stopped, the waves calmed down. You may hear a parallel to various other stories that we might think of. A student in the contemporary fiction class um, a couple of years ago, Mitchell Sycamore, wrote a very fine paper about Harun and the Sea of Stories, and here's part of what he wrote. In the act of participating in his father's stories, Harun experiences an overt occurrence of magic and confirms to himself that the real world was full of magic, so magical worlds could easily be real. It is only through this fantastical baptism that Harun can come to the place where stories can come to life. In other words, fantasy has an ability, a utility, to see our world in new ways. In the beginning of the story, Harun can be seen as a story skeptic, a young man on the verge of discarding the fantastic in exchange for a, da- a dry and useless factuality, like the clerkish Mr. Sangupta, or clerkish to you. But in, in being introduced to a world where magic comes to life, Harun learns that stories are not merely silly decorations on the peripheries of life, but part of the very fabric thereof. Ricoeur says stories develop in their readers a narrative intelligence, a kind of practical wisdom and moral judgment. He writes, and I like this picture because it was a clever way of illustrating what I'm putting here. There you go. The meaning or the significance of a story wells up From the intersection of the world of text and the world of reader. So there's a looking for meaning that it relates not just to the text out the world outside or inside the book but also to the world outside of the the text as well. There's a little book that we use in our first year courses at Redeemer um, called Literature Through the Eyes of Faith and the authors there say when we read we participate in life as we see how books Structure, interpret, and communicate experiences and truths. At the end of the story of Harun, when Rashid reunited with his story tap, thus able to be a storyteller again, stands up at the political rally where he was, he's been hired to tell stories by Snooty Batu. The story he tells is the story of the book that we've just been reading, secular. And the effect of the story is that the listeners recognize in the repressive forces embodied in the politicos around them Um, They recognize this story, and they refuse to submit to the machinations of these guys anymore, and they chant them out of the arena to the accompaniment of much pelting with rubbish, and are freed up to choose the the leaders that they really want, so two cheers for democracy. Rashid's storytelling has thus enabled the people listening to find themselves to hear what they really need. Stories are useful, even in this political sense. But there's another factor, too, in Harun, and that's that Saraya, the wife, comes back. It turns out that Mr. Sengapta's lack of imagination is combined with a lot of other less-than-pleasant qualities. Saraya says, what a skinny, scrawny, sniveling, driveling, mangy, stingy, weasley, weasley clerk. As far as I'm concerned, he's finished uh, finished with, done for, gone for good. Khatam should, Harun said quietly see, Rushdie is suggesting that stories are useful not only in an instrumental way and that they can wake people up to political opportunism and oppression, but they're also useful in a more inward way. They can enable people to see things afresh from another person's point of view and be a counterbalance to meanness and stinginess and a general lack of humanity. In an essay called Is Nothing Sacred, which he wrote while he was under the fatwa, Rushdie tells a parable about... Literature providing the one room in the great house of the world where we can go to reflect, to listen to all kinds of voices, talking in all kinds of ways about the past, the present, and the future, what's happened, what's happening, what should happen. And he sees this room, this space for voices, as absolutely necessary to make life livable so that the house of the world is not a prison but a community of possibility. Christians, of course, will want to reframe Rushdie's argument because his view of the literary imagination as well nigh salvific suggests a kind of neo romanticism that turns the imagination into an idol. We are, first and foremost, people of the book, the Bible. We live in a grand story that God is authoring through time, and by its light, we interpret everything else we read and experience. Far from being romantic about the imagination, as you may have noted, Our story reminds us of its darkness as well as its light. Its tendency in all of us to behave like spoiled children whose imaginations may actually help us find ways to be even more thoroughly stingy and measly and weasley. Our story, in fact, reminds us of sin. But God in divine wisdom has given us all kinds of stories in this house of the world and Rushdie is right. We do need stories. Even though they can be dangerous or blasphemous or blatantly false advertising, and one of the functions of a literary education is to teach us as readers how to be critical of what stories say and do, nevertheless, stories give us environments to explore. They engage and stretch our imaginations. They reflect our lives back to us. They help us to see from others' points of view. Any sense that I'm coming sort of to a conclusion here would be well um, discerned by you. Um, They help us to write our own narrative identities. You might say they're a matter of life and death. And as a result, these stories, written by God's creatures with or without overt acknowledgement of God, can help in directing us to that state of peace and harmony with self, other, and God, which the Bible calls shalom. But, and there's a final vital qualification here. For this learning through literature of compassion and understanding and identity is in and of itself insufficient to move us to action. We are not all sweetness and light. Literature cannot save us. If nothing else, the two world wars of the 20th century surely taught us that. Cultural education does not make people good. If it did, and if you've seen Schindler's List, you'll remember this scene. The SS officers at Buchenwald could not have listened to Mozart with such pleasure. Seeing how to live best certainly doesn't automatically result in our living that way. So we don't just need the, merit, the scriptural narrative and the fictional narratives as the foundation to understand how to live well in the great house of the world. We also need the spirit of the author, both to will and to empower us to live like that. Van and Gallagher and Lundeen say, only the working of the spirit can transform an understanding of literature's moral issues into action, both with scriptural stories and with the stories that God has gifted people to tell. It's only through the working of the Spirit who speaks the truth of those stories into our lives, as it were, that we can find our humanity enlarged and strengthened. In fact, it's ultimately only by God's grace that whether stories are fictionally true or historically true, their imaginative value can bring us to light. And it's surely only by God's grace and God's continuing involvement in this world as its supreme author that, as a teacher of literature, I can daily bet my life on these stories as vehicles of truthing. As Harun learned, even though we need some serious help to be and do what we should, it is truly a miraculous thing to be alive in the land of stories. Thanks be to God. Thank you. I think you can hear some, uh, some amazing connections to things that you've heard in Humanities 103, uh, certainly about narrative and story and 203 and 303. Uh, please don't pack up. I'd like to take two or three questions. Uh, Thank you very much. I um, was uh, thinking about the marvel of the uh, millions of copies of J.K. Rowling's books that have been read by millions of people, uh, including I'm sure dozens in this room, and I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on the popularity of Rowling and their relationship to to the importance of story and what that might say about us today, the stories that we want, the stories that we're hearing. Oh, that's an interesting perspective to take. There are many things I could say about J.K. Rowling's stories. Um, The first is I think she has an amazing imagination. The second is that I am impressed by the fact that the stories um, always in the end tell the truth about what is evil and what is good. Um, I know some Christians are very troubled by them because they see them as a a dangerous place to go in terms of magic and those sorts of things. I think those stories teach some wonderful lessons about the need to recognize how to use power rightly and what happens if you use it wrongly. Um, She's a great storyteller. I think she needs an editor, honestly. I think the stories could be a whole bunch shorter with no particular disadvantage, Um, but Why do people love them? I mean, I I love the fact that they get the most unlikely kids to sit around reading 600-page books. You know, that strikes me as amazing in this day when so many people read one computer screen and think they've done their work. You know, this troubles me enormously. So from that point of view, I think it's a great gift. But I I do think that my understanding of her um, underlying worldview is actually, uh, I I feel good about her underlying worldview. I know some Christians don't. so you know, are we not as a people created to want the good to win? <laughs> I suppose in the end. It's almost like the 21st century version of um, mid 20th century westerns which are now completely um, unpolitically correct. You know? But it's okay for us to have dragons and um, evil slimy things and uh, nasty things from another world which we definitely want to die and I think maybe that's what those stories do. That's the best I can do off the top. Okay? Thank you. Other question? Do you write stories? Do I what? Do you write stories? Oh. Um, I have done. Do you want to say anything about that? <laughs> um... I'm an academic in a small Christian school like this one where my writing time is almost always time spent writing academic work. I love writing non-academic stuff, but I usually end up with about two and a half days a year that I can do that. Um, I suspect that when eventually I get to that exciting moment when I'm no longer full time um, and don't have to produce quite as much academic work, which I also enjoy doing, I should say, um, I may write more. My mother was a fiction writer, um, my daughter is a poet, and so I come by all that honestly, and I have published a couple of stories and a few poems, but it's a very small amount. So thank you. It's pretty intimidating, actually, if you teach really fine writers all the time, because it makes you very critical of your own stuff, you think, Oh, that doesn't work, you know. So I, I love reading, which is good, because I have to do a lot of that. There was a question right down the front here, Tom. This is Andrew, I learned yesterday, right? Um, I know you are Canadian and British as well, but um, as a sort of a Western culture, we share a lot of common characteristics among those three countries. So I was just wondering if you think there's been a change in the past, uh, in the recent past, in how we have culturally perceived and used the element of story. Who is the we, Andrew, in your question? Basically just Western culture, Americans, Canadians, British. Okay. Okay. that's a huge question, that's a course really, but we'll, we'll do a little bit with it. I would say one of the things that the West has learned from other traditions, maybe it's one way of putting it, is the whole tradition of magic realism. Now in a sense, Harun is touching that, right? Magic realism, if any of you have read anything by Gabriel Garcia Marquez, for instance, he's um, kind of the classic in this era. It's the, the world where magic seems, um, or what we would call magical things seem entirely normal, uh, they exist in the same ontological reality, to use the big words, um, as as the real does. And I think that that way of writing, oh, I, know, I, would, I would argue that that way of writing has been used by people in um, countries and situations where the, the, the social situation is very difficult. It's been used as a way to imagine the world otherwise. It's been used as a way to get out from under political oppression or... Um, extreme uh, difficulties with social situations, that kind of stuff. And I think that um, there are Western writers who have begun to recognize the power of that kind of writing as well. And that is something that really didn't exist in uh, British or Canadian or American writing before, say, um, maybe 40 years ago at at the earliest. And I think that's very interesting. I mean, you cannot imagine in a Jane Austen novel something magical happening, can you? You cannot. Uh, you can in romantic literature, like um, Jane Eyre. You remember the end of Jane Eyre where she hears his voice from a hundred miles away calling Jane, Jane, and she drops everything and runs, you know, and you think, oh, really? You know, but that's, that's kind of a romantic sensibility, which is almost magic real. It's getting towards the magic real. But if you're interested in that kind of writing, I can give you a whole bunch of names that you might like to try reading. That would be my first off the top answer to you. Um, I think, too, Uh, What Rushdie actually says about realism, Western realism, which is the normal tradition of the novel, yeah, the one that we think of as normal, he says, when I'm writing about a country where religion is as real as the chair you're sitting on, then I cannot write in traditional Western realism because I need a language which enables religion, religiosity or religious sensibility to exist in a way that it does not in the Western literature that I've read. This is fascinating, because Rushdi is not, in fact, um, a, a Muslim. He's not committed to any particular faith perspective. But he's trying to describe a sensibility, and he says, I have to write differently um, from the way that the West has traditionally written, because it doesn't enable me to write about that kind of sensibility. If you're interested in Rushdie, incidentally, the book I would read would not be Satanic Verses, it would be Midnight's Children. Uh, This is a novel about the origins of the state of India in 1947. It's an absolutely brilliant book. For those of you who are interested in things like um, literary prizes, it not only won the Booker Prize when it came out in 1982, it won the Booker of Bookers 10 years later when they wanted to give one for the last 10 years. I think it's one of the greatest novels of the 20th century. It's not an easy novel to read, but it's absolutely brilliant. And he uses magic realism all the way through. So magic realism, both to give a voice for possibilities to the oppressed, and also as a space to speak about issues of faith. One of the things we actually discuss in that class that I just mentioned is, um, is the Bible magic real? I think that's a great place to finish, don't you? No answer. Just go and think about that. Is the Bible, Bible magic real? Thank you. (laughs)